Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark 10, 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to them and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do this for us. We, yeah. we want you to do this for us. We ask whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them over to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life at a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, my name is Rob. I'm one of the elders of Sola Church, um, and it's my distinct pleasure to be able to welcome Derek Kelsey to come up and speak to us today. Um, I think Derek, I probably met Derek, you can come on up. <laughs> I think I probably met Derek uh, in 2014, um, or 13, I can't remember exactly, but uh, we began meeting together regularly as, uh, as leaders in our area looking to see our churches become missional and live into the mission of God on a day-to-day basis. And I can confidently say that Derek is probably um, one of the people who helped me in particular take the idea of the image of God and our image bearing from something that was conceptual and thought about in seminary into everyday life, where you look at the people around you through that lens and you pursue them through that lens and you even see the mission of God is rooted in that so much, that God is on a mission that he's created this world, he's restoring it, and he's made us in his image and restoring that through Jesus so that we can then spread that glory around. Um, so Derek is a good friend. He's also, he's also been someone who's been, I think, very gracious uh, with, with me and my wife especially, trying to understand um, cultural issues and how we are called to live faithfully into those um, uh, try, uh, I think Derek is somebody who has helped me um, take off my own lens, so to speak, or at least begin to, and, and begin to look through the lens of other people's uh, daily experiences and lives um, in our country and in our neighborhoods. So it is my pleasure to commend him to you. Um, we as uh, elders of Sola Church believe strongly that it is our job to shepherd, to equip, and to send. And so our plan is to continue to expose all of you, not just to us as teachers, but to other people who have, who have the spirit of God in them who are going to be able to equip you for God's mission. And so I, I love to be able to introduce Derek today. He's going to speak for a while, and then we're going to have some Q&A towards the end. And, and just to remind you, too, this sort of kicks off our Kingdom and Nation series that we're, uh, that we're doing. So three weeks, 
uh, here on Sundays. And then after that, we've got several sessions planned throughout the rest of the year. So this is the kickoff to that. Thanks, Derek, for being here. Love you, brother. All right. Can you hear me? Um, well, that was a, a serious introduction. <laughs> um, but I, I do, I know it was real serious. Um, Rob has been a person who I have really admired and appreciated our relationship. Uh, like you said, we first met um, um, because as the as solo was getting started, uh, the embassy we've been around for maybe about a year or so. And so uh, he was just trying to pull together other pastors in the area um, to talk about missional communities and church planting and whatnot, but also to get together and pray. And so I uh, was this over Christmas, um, me and a buddy went down to, there's a, uh, a gym that's way down here. I don't know why he wanted to go to that gym, but uh, I was just riding with him. He was out of town. He had a membership at a gym down this way. And we got off at the exit that was right near that Starbucks where we first met. And I pointed out to him, I was like, yeah, man, I met some cool guys there. And we would go there and we'd talk church planning, talk missional communities, and then we'd pray. And uh, I just really appreciated the intentionality of that and trying to pull people together. And it's been cool to see how our relationship has grown and flourished over the years. So uh, you uh, are somebody who I admire as well. Uh, I shared this with Rob. Um, uh, we met about a month ago about how I appreciate what you guys are doing here at Sola. Um, one of the challenges that uh, all churches face, but especially uh, churches uh, of majority white congregations face is when trying to move into some of these difficult areas, um, everybody's not always on board with that. Or there's a sense of uh, excitement to do something just for a short while, but then after you get fatigued, then it's like, okay, well, let's move on to something else that gets us a little bit quicker results. Or maybe that doesn't involve as much pain and, and heartbreak um, because we as good intentioned people did not get those immediate results when we reached out and loved on people. Um, but I told Rob, I appreciate the commitment that you guys have, that this is not just something that you're doing um, uh, because it's reactionary or doing something based out of guilt or anything like that. But there's a, there's a strong uh, gospel focus and gospel intentionality, as well as a time horizon that will give rise to the type of, of kingdom change that we would like to see. So uh, I really respect what you guys are doing here. I respect your leadership. Um, uh, several of you uh, have become friends of mine, and so I... I don't feel like I am um, preaching at another church. This is my home church as well because we are family. So uh, thank you guys for receiving me in that. Uh, let's pray and we'll get started because I got a lot of material, but I also want to leave us some time for some, some Q&A and whatnot. Father, we just thank you so much for, for you. We thank you for what you have been doing since um, the beginning of time and, Lord, for what you will be doing throughout eternity. Lord, we thank you that you have called us into um, this marvelous mission you have entrusted it to us, Lord. And Lord, help us to understand better. Let us have ears to hear and hearts to receive where it is you're guiding us to, where it is you're calling us to, so that we can be the types of representatives of you that you are deserving of. Lord, we just thank you for a time of sharing, uh, sharing from your word, as well as just sharing with one another. And Lord, blessed, be blessed by our time and be honored by this, Lord. And let our hearts be open to receive the fruit and the seeds, Lord, that we can bear good fruit uh, of what you will do from today and going forward. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think I left my clicker. All right, so, so where we're going today is uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the mission of the church, and then we'll go on to talk about uh, this idea of the kingdom, and then uh, toward the end of each section, we'll, we'll, I'll share a couple of implications from that, and then at the end of that, we'll open it up for Q&A, and we can be here until you guys get hungry. All right. So the mission of the church, and I'm, I'm betting you guys have heard a lot of this before, but I don't want to assume, so we'll, we'll kind of backtrack, and if this is review for you, good. If this is new to you, that's good too. But um, the, mission of the, the mission of the church um, comes out of this, this Latin term called missio dei. And missio dei is just a phrase meaning the sending of God. And it begins with the assumption that God's interest for all humanity is for all humanity to know, love, and worship him alone. To know, love, and worship him alone. That's what God is about. That's what God has been about. You wake up tomorrow, you look on Facebook, that's what God is still about. God is about being known, loved, and worshiped alone by everyone. And so everything that God does, he does to prosecute that intent. So that could beg the question. Oh, oh we got, oh. Mm. We don't have this at the embassy, so uh, <laughs> I'm feeling good. Hey, can I come back next week? All right. All right. So that, that could beg the question of, is God, a, is God a narcissist? Because if God is saying that his mission is that he is known, loved, and worshipped alone, is God a narcissist? Well, we think about God. God cannot be God if he holds anything in higher value than this thing deserving of such worship. If there was something that was worthy of worship that's higher than God, guess what that thing would be? That thing would be God. So it is illegitimate of God to put anything up as being the highest thing to be worshiped besides him. Because God is, all, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing. And if so, God knows everything and he's evaluated everything and he's looked at everything and says, what is that thing that is most deserving of worship? What should sit on the pedestal as he's looking around? He's like, that thing is me. God doesn't do idolatry. If he was doing idolatry, then he would have to select something else as being what we call the goat. How many of y'all know what the goat is? Yeah, good. I'm talking to a home crowd here. Uh, I was in a barbershop uh, last well, two weeks ago and uh, I, was, I was waiting for me uh, to get my hair cut. Uh, a, a young man who was near me made the statement that Kobe Bryant was the second best basketball player of all time. Yes, I was scandalized. <laughs> and if you know anything about the black barbershop, it's all about these types of conversations and debates. And sometimes I just go there because it's like going to a mental dojo so I can get in there and get some good verbal practice and jabs in. But, I, but, I was, but this day, I was like, well, I have a meeting to go to. I brought my iPad. I said, I'm going to come sit down, get my hair cut, and leave. But when that brother said that, I was like, man, I can't just let that ride. <laughs> and you know, for the next 30 or 40 minutes, we debated about who the best basketball player was and why I felt Kobe absolutely should not be considered the second best basketball player of all time. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Some, some people know what I'm saying. Um, but if you want to have and see people in an extended argument, and, and maybe your thing isn't over basketball players, maybe it's over who should get the Oscar. 
Um, we all have a sense that when something that should be the best is not acknowledged as the best, we have a problem with that. And, and we will get into, I'm on a Facebook group with guys I played basketball with in high school, and it really is the same conversation every single day, but they're just arguing about who's better, Michael Jordan or LeBron James. And that's all, I mean, Monday, Tuesday, it doesn't matter, in basketball season, out of basketball season, they're arguing about it. And it's so passionate, and sometimes it gets a little bit ugly, and I'm like, come on, guys. But, but we understand that if something is the greatest, to have something else be assumed or talked about as being the greatest, that's offensive. So what does it look like for us who have finite minds and limited knowledge to have that sense of, uh, of, of what should be great being acknowledged as being great? And here's God who absolutely knows what legitimately is great. He has the appropriate filter. He has the appropriate lens. He has the appropriate knowledge and foreknowledge to see and know everything. And so for him, he says, what is the greatest thing here? The greatest thing on earth, the greatest thing in this universe is me. And therefore, because I'm the greatest thing, then I am deserving of all the worship, being known fully, and being loved by everybody. Can we get with that? Y'all can say amen. amen. Uh, there you go. Okay. All right. You got permission. All right. So God himself does not just sit back and say that uh, this is what I want from all of creation. I want to be known, loved, and worshipped by all of creation. God himself includes himself in this missionary enterprise. And what we know from the definition of a missionary, a missionary is just somebody who is sent. So uh, when I tell my son to go take out the trash, guess what he is? He's a missionary. <laughs> I didn't say he was a great missionary. <laughs> but he is a missionary. A missionary is simply someone who is sent. And so if, if we look into the text, and uh, because of time, we won't go deeply into this, but um, for future reference, uh, if you look at John 17, 8, uh, verse 18, 21, 23, and 25, you'll see several references to Jesus in this prayer talking about how it was the Father who sent him. And as we're looking at that, that prayer in John 17, uh, Jesus also intimates that not only did his Father send him, but his Father sent him for the purposes that the Father would be known. So here is God himself involving himself in the missionary enterprise, because God himself understands that he is the one to be known, loved, and worshipped above all. And so he involves and engages himself in that missionary enterprise by sending his son to make himself known, loved, and worshipped everywhere. But not only does the father send the son, but in John 14, we see that the father sends the spirit. So even within the Trinity, there is a missionary sending. And so the spirit is sent by the father. As well as if we look at John 15, 26, we see that even the son sends the spirit to bear witness about who the father is. And so when we look at the missionary enterprise, God is not just sitting back and saying, I'm to be known, loved and worshiped by all. God also includes himself in this mission. And so when we start thinking about the activity of God in creation, God's activity in creation is that all creation would come to know and love and worship him. So then what does that mean for the church? So we're all familiar with, or most of us, amen, uh, are familiar with the, the Great Commission in Matthew uh, 28, 19 and 20. And that commission starts off with the word go. So we know this is a missionary call. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Acts, 1, um, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 also says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And so we see that 
this is Jesus talking to his disciples as he's preparing to leave them and he's giving them a commission of what their mission is. And their mission is to go and make disciples. And so as the church, the church's mission is to go and make disciples, teaching them all that Jesus taught his disciples uh, that he commanded them. And that happens as a result of power of the Holy Spirit, because that is the animating agent that allows us to go and make disciples. All right. So God is involved in a missionary enterprise, but for some peculiar reason, he chose us to join him in this missionary enterprise for the purpose of him being known, loved and worshipped everywhere. All right. So we've got a couple of implications of that. The first is that mission is not a program of the church. It defines the church. So mission is not just something that uh, just a couple of people who have uh, have a calling to go overseas or have a calling for a certain segment of the city to do. No, if you're a disciple, if you are a part of the church, if you are a person who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus, guess what you are? A missionary. However, mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission is the vehicle that we use, that God has called us to do, to go out and make disciples. But the point of it all is not just to have disciples. The point of it to have disciples is that they will become people who progressively know more and more about what it is to know, love, and worship God. So sometimes we can get the the vehicle or the means confused with the end. Our means is making disciples. The end is the same end that God is about, and that is God being known, loved, and worshipped everywhere. So what is our role? Our role is not to start mission, but we recognize and in response join in with God's mission to the world. That should make somebody take a deep breath of relief. Because we don't we don't have to go and try to figure out, Lord, what is it that I should be doing? What is my purpose in life? He's already told you. And we don't have to say, well, I have no idea how we're going to come about this and how am I going to get this together? No, we don't have to figure it out. We just have to get on the train that's already moving. And that train has been going from the beginning of time and it's going to continue through eternity. So our role is not to start it, but to have ears to see and hearts to feel and recognize what is God already doing and join in and be a part of that. So we have to ask ourselves the question of what type of disciples are we making? If our if the means is disciple making, but the end is worshiping God, then how are we even presenting Jesus to the world as we go and make disciples? I'll tell you what we can't do. We cannot make Jesus an essential oil. See, what we do is because of the culture that we live in and we are too often influenced by the culture that we live in, we adopt certain policies and practices that are very effective in the marketplace. And so we try to think about, well, um, if, if I'm trying to get people on board with this thing, then I have to I have to sell this thing. I have to let you know that you need Jesus because Jesus is going to make things so much better for you. Uh, your, your marriage is, is in trouble. Uh, let me let me present Jesus to you, because if you get Jesus, then you will have a better marriage. Well, maybe you will. 
maybe you won't. Uh, well, 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 your kids are acting up. And so uh, maybe if you have Jesus and maybe if they get baptized and all of a sudden then your home life is going to be a lot more stable. Maybe. And maybe you won't. But Jesus is not an, an, an essential oil. Jesus is not just something that we're trying to market or sell to people. Because, again, we're thinking about we're making disciples. The point of this thing is not just to get people to make um, a conversion or to, to take a step off just to get past, like, well, how close to the line can I get and get over? And that's good enough. No, we're trying to make disciples who come to know and love and worship the king of the universe. So our, our approach just can't be simply, I need you to pray a prayer. Your approach cannot simply be, uh, I, I just need you to make a decision. That's, that's a part of the process, but that's, that's a part of the trajectory. The end is that that person would come to know and love and worship Jesus above all. So if that's the case, then we have to examine what is our methodology that we are presenting as it relates to Jesus. The offer of Jesus is not to make you better. The offer of Jesus is to make you new. It's challenging in, in our culture because uh, as, as believers, we want to fit in on some level. Um, but what God is calling us to is going to create something completely new in us. God doesn't want a better version of, of who you were. He's, he's, he's transforming us and conforming us to the image of his son. And that, that's, 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 a, that's a, a renewed view of that image that he originally created us in. And that's going to look different than just you stop cursing. Or you manage your money better. Yes, those things should probably be a part of your sanctification. Uh, well, I'm saying your discipleship journey. But God is trying to do something radically different. He's trying to change your perspective on things. He's trying to change the way that you see the world, the way you see people um, who are not worthy of being loved based on what the outside world says. God is trying to transform and renew us. And so we just can't make this thing about being better. It's about us becoming new. The good thing about this is that we don't have to do it in our own strength because the Holy Spirit is the animating agent for making disciples. Guess what you can't do? You can't change anybody's heart. If you're married, you know that for real. Because <laughs> everybody's laughing has probably tried and failed. But you can't change hearts. But all we can do is be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do and being faithful over our contributions to the disciple-making process. We cannot redeem people. We are not saviors. We are just the vehicle that the Savior has chosen to publish his message. So the onus is not on us to fix it. We don't have the power. Or if you think you do, you're going to burn out really, really quickly. But the power that we have is, is via the Holy Spirit. And so given that, we need to make sure that we're focused on the process and not the outcome. All right, we're going to start flipping for a second. I'll turn to our Philippians chapter 2 real quick.
verse 9. So this is, this is Paul is, is uh, writing to the Philippians church, and he's challenging them to have uh, the example, have this attitude within them that also was in Jesus, and that attitude of Jesus was one of humility, of being a servant, uh, even to the point of death. And then verse uh, 9, after going through that, he says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Guess what's going to happen at the end? Everyone is going to bow. Everyone is going to give the appropriate glory to the one who's deserving of that worship. So if we already know what the end is going to be, that takes the pressure off of us. All we have to do is be faithful with the process because God's already going to handle the outcome. So whether they wanted to bow or not, in the end, every means every. All means all. Everyone is going to acknowledge God as being the GOAT. It is not our job to try to put somebody in an MMA headlock to make them see and acknowledge that God is the GOAT. That's going to happen. Our role is just to be faithful over what God has asked us and called us to do, and not to do it in our own strength, but to do it under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit, and we'll let God handle the details. And if we do, like Matthew 25, in the end, God will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over, set you over much. Not well done, that good and faithful accountant who was able to get this many conversions. Not well done, that, that good and faithful uh, 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 neighbor who just uh, worked himself to the bone and, and gave all their money away and did all of these things to help. No, well done, that good and faithful servant. You've been faithful, not, not you've worked the hardest, not you had the best results. Man, you, you, you could do this thing for the next 30 years, and man, I, I've just been trying to love on this family or love on uh, my neighbor, and man, we're not, we haven't made much traction in 30 years. You know what? It's all right. It's okay. Because God is not grading on us on, on did we do something that we thought we were going to do. What he's grading us on is are we being faithful over what he's given us to do? Faithful doesn't equal necessarily all these uh, 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 accounting calculations of results. Faithful is, is about stewardship. How did you handle what God gave you? It's about disposition and not output. Are you with me so far? Okay, good. Talk to me a little bit. All right. So next we got, we'll talk about... Um, the relationship between the church and the kingdom of God. So the first question we got to ask ourselves is, what is the kingdom? And the kingdom involves the rule of the ruler over the ruled in the realm. I should make y'all repeat that too. <laughs> the rule of the ruler over the ruled in the realm. So when we're talking about a kingdom, there are these four aspects. Four aspects. There's a rule. Um, um, what, what is the authority here? The ruler, who has the authority. The ruled, who is, um, who is being ruled or who, who sits up under that authority. And the realm is uh, what is the body or what is the space in which is being ruled over. 
All right. Y'all tracking with me? So when we're thinking about the kingdom, the first question we have to ask ourselves as it relates to God is how many kingdoms are there? Go ahead. You can talk to him. Everything. OK, so how many how many kingdoms are there? All of the all of them. King, all kingdoms. OK. Yeah. Yes. I would say it this way. I would say that there's one kingdom. Because if we go back to Genesis, it says Genesis chapter one, verse one, it says in the beginning, who? God. And the next word is created. So if he made it all, guess what it is? It's all his. OK. There are multiple planets, universes, uh, 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 countries, cities, towns that we can kind of think of as like mini kingdoms. But if we were looking at an org chart and had to do a roll up of that org chart, it's coming up to one person. God. So God is the kingdom. God is the king. And there's only one kingdom. There may be these little mini kingdoms. But uh, if God ever decides that I don't want that to exist anymore, boom, it doesn't exist anymore. So that means he has the big joker. For those of you who play spades, y'all get it. <laughs> He's ultimately the ruler. All right. So who are the rules? We say in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it talks about uh, the animals and humanity. The rule is all of the creation that God created. So that includes us and that includes people who are not in this room, people who are over there in the gym, people in the parking lot, people at Starbucks this morning, people who are still in bed. Birds, lions, tigers, earthquakes, clouds, everything are being ruled by the father. He is the king. And so what is the realm? The realm is all of creation. So there's nothing outside of the king's rule. All right. So we know how many kingdoms there are. There's one king. We know who the ruler is. We know who's being ruled and we know what the realm is that's being ruled. So a question that sometimes comes up as we start talking about this biblically is, is it an earthly kingdom or a heavenly kingdom? Is it a material kingdom or a spiritual kingdom? Um, and my answer is yes. So we, we have this sense of this divide between uh, sacred and secular or uh, between material and immaterial. Uh, if God created it, guess what? It's a part of his kingdom because all that he created is a part of his realm. And so the distinguishing part about the kingdom is that God's kingdom is characterized by righteousness, justice, peace, prosperity, and is forever. This is a very key point. God's kingdom is characterized by righteousness, justice, peace and prosperity. And it is forever. Turn with me to Matthew chapter three. In the New Testament, we uh, are introduced to uh, a, a fellow named John the Baptist, who was the first one to in the New Testament to start talking about the kingdom uh, is uh, Matthew chapter three. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what was he preaching in verse two? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. 
And John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was wild locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the regions about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. That was very welcoming. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Drop down to verse 11. He's, he goes on to say, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So in Luke's account, uh, we, we miss out on this exchange, but this adds a little more color to the passage when it's talking about this kingdom. So John is preaching this message uh, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as he's preaching this, uh, people are coming from all around and these uh, dudes, the Pharisees roll up and John is like, why y'all are coming around? And um, because he did not think them to be sincere in their desire for this repentance. But there were some in the crowd who were. And um, if you look at chapter three of Luke um, 10, excuse me, chapter three of Luke in verse 10, um, it gives a little bit more color to what happened in this particular uh, scenario. It says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Who has, he, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. John is out preaching this message about repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And the people who are hearing this were asking questions. So what does this repentance look like? Notice what John says. John didn't say uh, simply, I need you to pray a prayer. John didn't simply say, uh, I need you here uh, at Sola at 1030 on Sunday mornings. He could have and probably should have said that because people benefit from being here. Amen. But that's not what he led with. The people said, what does this repentance look like? And he effectively said, do your job well. This was not something hyper spiritual. He didn't say, I need you to pray the rosary 20 times. I need you to memorize uh, the, the Pentateuch. He told the tax collectors, stop cheating people out of their money. He told, he said, if you have two coats, give somebody who doesn't have a coat a coat. If you have more than enough food, give their food to some, share your food with somebody else. Deeply practical things. And so we start this, start to think about the kingdom and, and, and what God is calling us to in the kingdom. It's not just these spiritual ideas. There's some very practical, even dare I say, social aspects to what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to to move in a distinct way in society. John wasn't the only one who preached the message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. We also see that Jesus preached the same message. Turn to uh, Matthew chapter four. 
verse 17. This is right when Jesus began his ministry. And um, verse 17 says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus was preaching the same message that John the Baptist was preaching. And the implications of that message was the same was the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if people were going to ask Jesus, what does this look like? He would tell them to do your job well. Take care of your neighbor. If you have more than what you need, share with the other. Don't defraud people. Look out for one another. Jesus had one message. Matthew 4, chapter 23. And he went out, and this is Jesus, and he went out throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction amongst the people. Sometimes I think when we, when we think about Jesus, we think that Jesus was going around healing people to show off. Like, ooh, y'all want to see something cool? This person, um, his arm is broken, boom, their arm is together. Or uh, at, the, at the miracle at Canaan, um, the wedding at Canaan, it's like, oh, that's water? Oh, y'all still thirsty? Boom, wine, keep the party going. Jesus was not a magician trying to wow the crowd. When Jesus was going around healing people, when Jesus was going around delivering people from being possessed with demons and, and suffering depression and oppression, he was doing that to give evidence that the kingdom was near. Because remember, we said that the kingdom is characterized by righteousness, by justice, by peace and by prosperity. And so if people are sick, they're not prospering. And so Jesus healing them was a demonstration of this is what the kingdom looks like. I'm not doing this just to show you how bad I am. I'm doing this to give evidences of the kingdom being at hand. And so Jesus went about that, about teaching and preaching about repentance and the kingdom, but he also went about healing and doing these other things that demonstrated that the kingdom was near. If we look at the Lord's Prayer in, in uh, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Jesus does not make that delineation between uh, earth and heaven. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus wasn't doing this to say, hey, I'm showing you what heaven is going to be like. Jesus was doing that to say, hey, this is what the kingdom is like. The kingdom is here. You know, the kingdom is here because that person who had a limp is no longer limping. Is it going to be like that in heaven? Absolutely. But we don't have the past to say, well, we'll just wait to heaven for everything to be made whole. The kingdom is near. And by near, I mean here, because you see the evidences of the kingdom being there based on what was happening when Jesus was around. A couple more verses and we'll move on from this. Matthew 6, 23, when it says, but first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You know, I think sometimes when we look at that passage about how God can, he takes care of the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. So uh, let's just make sure that we're seeking him first and then God will give us all the stuff that we want. No, that's not what it is. God is saying, seek first the kingdom, full stop. That's what it is, because if it's the kingdom is here, you'll have everything you need. 
It's not the stuff that you want. It's him. It's not the stuff of him. It's him. And when you have him and the kingdom is showing off in its fullness, then there's going to be prosperity. Then there's going to be peace. Then there's going to be justice. All those things we really desire. But we have to seek the kingdom and not the stuff. Matthew 9, 35 also talks about Jesus going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. If people were paying attention, they would have seen that the kingdom was not just near, but there. But Matthew 11, we have uh, somewhat of a more explicit um, case for that. In Matthew 11, we have the story of John the Baptist. He's in prison. And here's John the Baptist in prison. And when you're in prison, guess what it doesn't feel like? It don't feel like the kingdom. Uh, people don't prosper in prison, just FYI. But here's John the Baptist um, in, verse, in uh, chapter 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John heard in a prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Sounds like a peculiar question for John because he was just earlier saying there's somebody who's coming who I'm not worthy to, to, to tie his sandals. There's there, there's a king who's coming. But now he's like, well, did I did I miss something? Did I get something wrong? Because he's sitting here in jail and it doesn't feel a lot like the kingdom. And so he says, uh, ask your disciples, uh, you know, are you the one, Jesus, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to him. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus, again, used those evidences in saying. Am I the one? Well, what is the word that you're hearing on the street? Are blind people seeing? Are people who could not hear now hearing? Um, are, 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 are people who are diseased no longer diseased? If that's the case, then I'm the one that you should be looking for. And this is evidence that the kingdom is here. And so he goes on to say uh, in verse 12, and this is kind of our evidence. Um, Jesus is talking about start back in 11. He said, truly, I say to you among say to you among those born of a woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. I'm not going to get into the second part of that. We don't have time for that. But the key thing I want you to see is that that word has. Has is present tense. Jesus was telling them that the kingdom of heaven is not just near. It's here. The kingdom of heaven is here. And so that may beg a couple questions. When did it begin? Because John first started presenting the idea about the kingdom of heaven. Or did the kingdom begin when uh, Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? I would say to you that the kingdom never left. God started being the king in the beginning. He didn't stop being the king at any point in time. And so there is not a, a notion of the kingdom just started at some point. The king has been the king 
the entire time. This is not new. We have a phrase, God is not new to this, he's true to this. This is what he's always been about. He's always been about being king. He never abdicated his throne. And so Jesus in the passage says, he who has ears, let him hear. This is what I'm about. This is what I'm doing. If you're paying attention to what's going on around you, this is what the kingdom is, looks like. And by implication, therefore, there's some things that maybe we should be doing. The kingdom has continued to, to be talked about in the New Testament. I won't uh, have us go through all of this, but uh, Jesus continued to talk about this even as, as he was resurrected. Um, the kingdom was talked about by Philip uh, as he went out uh, baptizing. Uh, Paul, in talking to the Ephesian elders, talks about uh, that I know, none, I know that none of you among you, among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom, will see my face again. Um, and we see that even in Colossians chapter 1, verse um, 13 and 14, that uh, it says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So the kingdom that we're talking about is not just something in the future or something in the past, but it's also a very present reality. A couple more things. One, the church is not the kingdom. The two are not identical. The church is present in the kingdom, yet the kingdom is not fully or completely present now. We will see the kingdom on full display after Jesus returns and makes all things new in Revelation, as we see in Revelation 21, 5, when it says Jesus returns and he said, behold, I'm making all things new. But the church and the kingdom are not equivalent. The church is to be an evidence of the kingdom, though. The church is the place where God's spirit reigns. So the church should be a place and a people of righteousness, peace and prosperity. The church is the incarnation of the kingdom in the world and should strive to faithfully live out that kingdom identity. We don't get to choose what we're doing or what we are about. That's already been determined for us. We were given the mission by our Savior to go and make disciples for the purpose of God being known, loved, and worshipped everywhere. And because we are a part of this kingdom identity, then our activity as a people, but also our being as a people, should be characterized by peace and prosperity and by righteousness and by justice. I didn't make this up. I didn't make the rules. You didn't make this up. You didn't make the rules. The person who was your Sunday school teacher didn't make these rules. This is what God has always been about. And so we have to hold tightly to that because there's some implications of if this is what it is, if the kingdom looks like righteousness and justice and peace and prosperity, and we are that vehicle in the world that should characterize that and show that off, then uh, uh, we got some work to do. Here's some implications. If this indeed is who we are, then we need to have a greater confidence in the transformative power of the gospel. I think we would readily acknowledge that the gospel has the ability to change someone's spiritual circumstance from death to life. And to me, I don't know a bigger chasm 
than that. You know, Romans 1.16 says this, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Amen, preacher. Yes, there it is. But that same power that we have in us has social aspects as well. It's not just power to give someone salvation. Because remember, God is not just simply concerned about the justification aspect of our salvation, about the aspect of us no longer being separated from him and not, no longer going to hell. God is concerned about him being known, loved, and worshipped everyone by all. And so that requires more than simply us saying, yes, Lord, I believe you died for my sins. We are called to move and act in a certain way in society that demonstrates what that kingdom looks like. And when we do, people will see it and, and desire to be a part of that because they also want that peace and that prosperity and that righteousness, because ultimately that's all that we all want. But the church has to be the person that puts that on display. The problem is. The church hasn't done a great job of that. The church in America has not done a great job of that. We've been very diligent about um, uh, sharing the gospel. We've been very diligent in our evangelism, but, but it's been very, very narrow, our picture of what it is that we're after. We'll say, okay, hey, we're just trying to get you saved, and we'll let all the other social stuff kind of work itself out. That's not our business. That's not our bit. But Jesus, when he said that the kingdom of heaven was near, he didn't say, I'm just trying to baptize you. He said, I'm trying to transform how you move in society. It has to do with how do you go to work? It has to do with how do you handle your resources uh, with respect to your neighbors? The notion that there's something wrong or negative about social aspects of the gospel is a, is a fairly new thing. Um, if, if we were thinking about just even in our, in our Protestant evangelical stream, this notion that there's something negative about the quote unquote social gospel. Again, that's that's new. If you, if you were to take a poll of many of the hospitals in this nation, most of those hospitals were started by Protestant or Christian organizations. So even here in Denver, Porter Adventist Hospital, it was started by a, a guy that um, he received such good treatment at a couple of, of hospitals run by Seven Day Adventist that he decided he wanted to open his own in 1930. Again, we, we, we tend to think that everything that's happened or our way of thinking has always been the case. There was not this, this battle between, you know, is, if I'm doing something social, then is that wrong? No, you have people building hospitals. There's another hospital, um, uh, Presbyterians in St. Luke's. Um, that hospital has been around since, uh-oh, there you go. It's been around since 1881, St. Luke's. Presbyterian Hospital uh, was opened in 1926. It started off training nurses. Again, these are, these are church people. These are Protestants. These are evangelicals. So, social was not a bad word. That's what we did. But I think somehow we've lost our way in terms of trying to delineate ourselves from um, liberal teaching, liberal theology, liberal politics, or what have you, that, that we, we've, we've abandoned something that's distinctively a part of kingdom living and kingdom identity. 
there's um, a case study that I, I would love for us to do on a group of believers in America in the 1950s and 60s. As I think about today, and I know you guys have a kingdom and um, politics coming up, Michael Weir. Michael Weir? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to plug it. Uh, what, what, what's the day? Yeah. What, what day is it coming? February 5th. Go be a part of it. Um, but, it, but it's important because we need to know how to properly engage politically as believers. Um, we've lost our way. We've definitely lost our way. And we are trying to bring about kingdom outcomes by primarily political means. And I understand the, the, the fear and concern that we have because politically, religious liberties are uh, in question now. And so we're feeling like, oh, we got to really retrench and we got to fight hard against this because if we lose our political influence and political power, then, then what will we be able to do? How will we be able to affect kingdom living? But I, th but I, but I go back just about uh, 60, uh, 70 years, uh, 50, 60 years ago, and there were some believers who were in the America who did not have political power. Martin Luther King's birthday is tomorrow. You'll hear a lot of going on about who he is, um, some of it mythologized, and some of it really missing the true impact that he had. But Martin Luther King is sometimes viewed as just an avatar, but understand and appreciate there were a lot of people who did a lot of work in order to help bring about the types of changes that we typically just lay at his feet. And so if we were to think about um, in the South, in America, in the 1950s and 1960s, there were believers who held the hope in that, that kingdom reality in the future, but did not think that we just have to wait until Jesus returns for things to get better. There was people who believed that uh, we trust that if God is king, we can move and act in such a way to change our circumstances and the circumstances of many others. We talk about the black church and the civil rights movement, and we have to realize that everybody, number one, who was black was not down with the protest and the types of things that were done to affect the change. It was a subset of those folks. Everybody who was black and went to church was not down with the protest and whatnot. It was a, it was a small subset of folks who were with that. And so we're not, we're not talking about um, some superhuman Christians we're not talking about people who just had uh, the Jesus thing licked and just were perfect. No, there were people who were broken, struggling, who were in need of a savior themselves. So I'm not trying to turn them into some sort of glorified heroes that we have to say, oh, wow, let's just be like them. But what I am saying is there was a group of people who said because of who I believe the king to be, and how I understand the kingdom should look like, and I'm evaluating my circumstance and the circumstances of others around me, we can do something. And so this movement was given rise and gave, was given birth to out of the church. The church was a place where these folks could meet and not be uh, under the surveillance of the government or other ruling authorities in their local areas. And so they were able to have these meetings and they were able to organize and do some things, but also the motivation was not just simply, hey, we wanna be able to drink out of the same water fountain. 
It was, we believe that kingdom flourishing says, says that I'm created in God's image too. And therefore I have worth and dignity. And I'm not going to just sit back and allow the society to make the rules for me in that. I'm going to push against that. And you know that the change was not instant. There are many people who felt that way in the 30s and 40s who never got to see the March on Washington, who never got to see the Voting Rights Act of 64 passed, who never got to see the Civil Rights Act of 1965 passed. But yet they still believed and had hope. And it was okay if they didn't get everything that they needed out of here, because remember, we're talking about process, not outcome. In the end, we're going to win. But I think of my mom. So my mom was a teenager in the 1960s, and uh, they were starting to have some of these meetings at some churches in the area in Birmingham. And uh, my mom went to a meeting because one of her friends said that there were cute boys at these meetings. <laughs> Not because she was just a sold out, I'm all about that life. It was like, oh, it's cute boys, I'm in. But when she got there and started hearing about things that she just did not have a view of because her life was so limited living in a segregated society. She didn't appreciate what the discrepancies were in, in terms of even her high school experience versus uh, other high schools in the city. And so just the idea that, hey, this is something I can be active, I can be involved, I don't have to sit back and just accept that. You know, she participated and became a part of the movement as a, as a teenager. And I, and I just kind of think about, well, well, well where, what motivated her? Well, once she heard what was going on, the thing that helped to give her resolve was, was not the, the, the social parts of it, but really being grounded in that, um, I have this faith in who God is. And I believe that if God wants this to change, he can make it happen. And so I'm gonna step out and do these things in faith, not knowing what the outcome was going to be. There were people in her family who were not down with that. So it's not, again, it's not some monolithic, all these folks who were in Birmingham were just all about this who were black, no. Again, it was, we're talking about a subset of people. But it was a subset of people who did not have a lot of political power. There were no political action committees run by black folk in the 1950s and the 1960s. In fact, most could not vote. They had the right to vote, but could not exercise that right because of shenanigans like poll taxes and things of that nature. So it was a matter of being stripped of any kind of political power. And yet, here I stand in front of you today as evidence that there can be change even if you don't have political power. They were able to upheave, provide upheaval to a system that was rooted and still, on some level, it's still rooted in America from its foundation. But they didn't do it because their president was in office. They didn't do it because the senator that they wanted to have in office was there. They didn't do it because they had a, a, government, a governor that was sympathetic to their cause. They really had to do it because they believed that the king was the one who had the ability to change the circumstances. What they were after was noble, peace, prosperity, righteousness, justice. They wanted to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And they believed that enough 
to move out in the face of tremendous headwinds. And we see the types of changes that they were able to affect. And so that's a challenge to us as we kind of sit in this political time and, and think about, well, what's the worst possible outcome? The worst possible outcome is that we lose some religious freedom. We no longer have political power. We are uh, a minority. We are considered outcast. We are oppressed. But if that becomes our reality, we have not lost. Because if we just go back 70 years, people in this country in the same circumstances were able to win. Where's your hope? What are you trusting in? What do you desire to see? If we are indeed kingdom people, it's not just about salvation. It's not just about having the right uh, categories lined up in your head about, okay, my, my belief structure is right. No, it's about there, there's activity, there's action. Faith without works is dead. It's not faith or works, it's faith and works. couple questions to ponder. Why are we afraid of the gospel having social and societal implications? What should our church be doing or modeling given it's being a kingdom community? And what is one intentional act that I will first pray over and then act upon in line with my kingdom citizenship? Very, very carefully, I want to make sure that we're praying over it first before we act upon it. Because again, it's process and disposition, not outcome or result. The Holy Spirit needs to guide this, not how you feel today. Because guess what? Tomorrow, after this message is worn off, you might not feel it anymore. Amen, somebody. But this is what God has always been about. This is what God in heaven, the kingdom will be seen in its full. There will be no more sickness, pain, death, brokenness. Can't wait to see that. But we don't have to wait to act and bring about uh, demonstrations of that now. Because the kingdom is already here. And we've been empowered by our Savior. And we've been given the Holy Spirit to go and make disciples and live in a distinct way in order to show the world what the kingdom is like. It's going to be very hard to go outside and say, hey, this is what peace and prosperity and justice and righteousness looks like if we don't have our house together. So we got to start in here and by in here, not just solo, but within the church in America, because there's a lot of brokenness even within the church. But we have to get this right. We can't go and tell the world, hey, this is what peace looks like if we are warring and in factions and, and segregated and um, not on the same page and living out the unity that we already have here. But if we get that right, then we can take that forward. Q&A time. Uh, we want to take a few minutes. If uh, anybody has any questions, just follow up. We appreciate Derek. That was great. I mean, talking about mission, this is really uh, leading us into some of the specifics we're going to get into soon.
So you said we can't change hearts. We can be sensitive to the spirits leading and being faithful. Just how do you see that looking? Is it just prayer or how's that? Yeah, I, I think uh, definitely prayer. But sometimes we, we, when we think about mission or kingdom work, our, our eyes get too big. We think it's something huge and grand. Uh, oftentimes I found that uh, there will be people who are right already who are part of our spheres of influence. Neighbors, coworkers, um, people who are maybe clamoring for your attention, maybe negatively or positively. Um, and, and so it's not, I need to kick over 20 rocks and find like where, where are these people or, or where's that at? It's, you know, God, as I'm going, you know, the, 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 the verb uh, there in terms of going and making disciples says, it says to go, going as you go, make disciples. So as you're already doing what God has led you to do in, in, in your work or your vocation or where you live or uh, uh, if you have kids moving and uh, in relationship with them and the people who are in relationship with them uh, at the gym or just whatever your hobbies are, it's like as you're going, there are people all around you who are in need of being discipled. But I think starting off with prayer to, and say, Lord, help me to hear, hear what's going on. Help me to see it. Help me not to overlook stuff that's already here. Because oftentimes it's, it's just like right in front of you. And then sometimes God will put somebody in your lap. Um, uh, my wife, uh, a couple weeks ago, went bowling with the kids. And uh, they were sharing a bowling lane with a, a woman and a man and somehow struck up a conversation and this woman was like, I want to hear more. She started telling her about why she was here and whatnot and told her about the church. And so the woman said, well, you know, I want to hear more about this thing. I've been struggling and kind of wanting to, uh, I'm kind of that, sp I'm, I'm spiritual, but not really organized religion type talk, but wanted to sit down and talk. And so they connected and, and had coffee. And it's like, she just went bowling. I mean, this was not, you know, some big tent revival. She went bowling with them. This is, you know, but God will sometimes put people just right in your lap. Um, but we just have to be sensitive to say, okay, when we see that, you know, Lord, what do you want me to do here? And just be open to whatever he wants to do with you. Yeah. Anybody else? I'm not going to really ask the question because I don't want to be leading or, mm -hmm. or give a false question, but could you maybe just talk about the church corporately versus when you talk about like discipleship and making people know and love and worship God? It sounds a little more individual, so is it relates to pursuing shalom and peace and justice mm -hmm. and righteousness? Like how do you see the church corporately engaged in that versus disciples or individually? Sure. Um, I like it that y'all have missional communities <laughs> because I think that is a, a vehicle that really helps us not to do this thing by ourselves. So when we're pursuing discipleship, it's not just, okay, let me find my person, but maybe there's this family or maybe there's this, this community, this area that I'm doing this in community with other people. Um, this is not an individualistic exercise. Uh, God created the church as a community, so we should be moving as a community. And that's an area where we have to try to shake off our American Western individualistic impulses 
and say, but no, not just how do I do this, but how do we do this? Uh, so you guys already have a, have a, a, a vehicle right now um, with how you're structured with your missional communities. Um, but I think also even um, as you do things as a church, you'll become known for being people of peace and being known for being people of justice. And so you become a welcoming environment for others to come into. And so even um, how you receive people in here on Sunday morning, you know, that's a, that's a corporate activity. It may be an individual coming in, but if somebody comes in here and says, I feel welcomed, I feel valued here, that's something that, that has to be the ethos of the group, not just of, oh, we just have one person on the door who smiles really nicely. Um, so yeah, but I think to your point, it's not an individualistic exercise, it's a community exercise. And we have to think about ways to do these things, not just by ourselves. If you find yourself doing it by yourself, try to find ways to invite other people into it. And so the onus is not just on you, because ultimately the onus is not just on you. 